what is the law and what's the purpose of the law? Well, it's not to earn our way to heaven and it's not something we need to get past. Today we look at how God lays out the law for his people so they could see what delights him and they can also see and we can see our own need for a savior. This sermon was originally recorded at Meadowview Elementary, July 28th, 2013. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we're in the tail end of our series on the book of Exodus. I've got more and more questions about it, but we're uh, making our way through Exodus. Probably one of the most exciting books, I think, in all of Scripture. If you can think of, of Scripture and the stories that would be, uh, the books that would best be turned into a movie, I think this would be it. Just think about some of the exciting things that have happened in Exodus. The crossing of the Red Sea and the ten plagues and the, um, the Passover meal and the angel of death going through. All these things happen in the book of the burning bush and Moses coming. And even the birth of Moses is a cool beginning, isn't it? Like, and he goes in this pitch basket and is picked up by the princess. This would have all been pretty cool. That's probably why it's been made into a movie like ten times. But one of the key things, if you're talking about a history as a people of Israel, one of the key things as you function would have been the giving of the law. This would have been an epic event, and inside the book of Exodus, it takes up five chapters, from Exodus 19 all the way through Exodus 24. And then, of course, they mess it up, and they have to get the law again later on about Exodus 30. So we're in the book of Exodus, and we're going to be covering three sections as we talk about what is the purpose of the law. That's why we picked the reading of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, the person, the expert in the law, comes to Jesus to say, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? Like, what's the purpose of the law? This is really what we're talking about. So if you think in your head, what is the purpose of the law? Can you just think in your head, why, do, why does God give us the law? Why does God give us commandments? There's usually about two schools of thought. I'm saying, I th I'm sure you guys theologically have nailed it and it's perfect. But if you'd go and talk to your friends, you go to talk to someone at, um, and you say, hey, what's the purpose of God's law? They're probably going to fall into two categories. One is, you know what? The law is essential. The law is the way that we work our way up to God, and the law is th that God shines on us. We follow his laws. He's happy with us. This is kind of how every religion in the whole planet works. The other one, which is probably not as common, is the law is kind of like a, a good thing back in the past, but it's probably about time we got past the law. And you have a lot of things like this in your life. Think of how, how you function each day. You can go so far with a certain method, but then you've got to change your methods to go to like the next level. And I'm gonna, this is going to touch home on all of you. Um, does anyone recognize that? Those are not mine. Those are the prettiest man hands I've ever seen. I don't know whose hands those are. But this is a Frisbee golf disc. So we went, I just thought of this because we went Frisbee golfing with the rooted group. And there's a transition. If you really want to be good at Frisbee golf and you want to try and throw it really far, this is the traditional grip. So if you just grabbed it, I'm guessing most of you, you'd grab the Frisbee, you'd hold it like this, and you say, oh, this works. And then your Frisbee goes like this, and it swings way back down if you want to take it to the next level. You need to incorporate the power grip. Exhibit A, exhibit B. The only difference is, is you pull the finger in, but the, what's the problem when you pull this finger in and you grip a Frisbee like this? It's really hard to control, and it takes a lot of practice to actually decent at it, and you end up like whipping it over there, and then it's way off, and it goes over this way. But if you really want to be good, I'm sure all world champions exactly hold it like that. So where am I getting at this? The false, uh, Fosbury flop. If you want to be good at high jump, you could scissor kick it or you could dive over it like other kids do. You could do, well, that's not legal, but you could do these things. But the Fosbury flop takes some practice, right? 
This takes you to the next level. Typing. How many of you are hunt and peg? Hunt and peg. Hunt and peck. There we go. Some of you are. I had a friend in college that still did it, and he was as fast a typer as I was, so you go like this. <laughs> but uh, if you really want to get to the next level, this is like the, where you got to go, and then probably shorthand and things like that. That's how some people view the law. The law back in the day was good. Hearing God's commands is good, but really we got to get past that, and we got to move towards this kind of um, era of love and acceptance and things like that. The problem is this. Both views, the law is the way that I get to God or the law is something I have to get past, is a little bit simplistic. And we're spending a lot of time just to figure out what salvation means. The same thing is true with the law. It's multifaceted, and there's a lot of things we can learn from the law which are a little bit more complex than that. So we're in the book of Exodus, and we're coming up on the people. They have just settled down at the, the base of Mount Sinai, which would have been a pretty tall mountain, the traditional location for Mount Sinai and they camp out. And uh, Moses goes up to God on top of the mountain and called to him from the mountain. So God's talking to him, and he says, this is what I want you to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have said, I've seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Isn't that cool? Do you want to be God's treasured possession? I think that sounds cool. If someone would say, you, you are my most treasured possession, now that sounds a little bit weird, but just like if, if you're on a sports team or something like that, and your coach says, you are my most important player. What if you work somewhere, and the, the boss sits you down and said, you are the most vital person in this whole organization? That means something to you. God is now saying to the people of Israel, you are can be my treasured possession, which is pretty awesome. What this is talking about is the word, it's not just a treasure, um, like something valuable, but it's someone's personal collection. So a monarch would own pretty much the whole planet or the whole country. Does this make sense? A monarch owns the roads. A monarch owns like the buildings. The monarch owns the people, but that they had their own personal stash of wealth. And this is part of that wealth. So how do you become God's treasured possession? What I'm telling you is what the law is not. You read this and it says, okay, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. This makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You work really hard and I'm going to delight in you. Does that make sense? Naturally, that makes sense. But that's not quite how God works, is it? Even though very clearly it looks like God is saying, if you obey me fully, then you're going to be special to me. What did God say before this? He says, I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. God does not sit the people of Israel down before he gives the law and said, you know what? I was a pretty good consultant to you. God does not sit you down, as I explained, um, people ask about the Mormon faith and how that works. And I said it's like Luigi in Super Mario Brothers when you get stuck. And Luigi says, hey, do you need some help? And then Luigi takes you through the level and shows you how to get through it. That is not what God does. God doesn't say, just show, follow my lead and we'll be good to go. God doesn't say, I consult you, and you're good to go. God does not run alongside going, go, 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 go. God says, I carried you. I picked you up, and I brought you to myself. God has already accepted them. God has already said, you are mine. And now he's just talking about a different relationship. To clarify that a little bit, um, what does it mean that God has picked them up? Has anyone seen the poem, Footprints in the Sand? 
This is in, I think, half my relatives' houses. So if you have, um, but I'm not going to read the whole poem, but essentially the poem is, it shows some footprints in the sand, imagine that. And it's usually in someone's bathroom because everyone, for some reason, has beach themes in their bathroom. I don't know why they don't have beach themes in their bedrooms or something like that. But in the, in the bathroom, they have this beach theme. And the, it shows these prints, and then one set of prints, and then two sets of prints. And essentially, the poem says, um, the person's going and going, God is walking with them, and this is really a beautiful thing. And then suddenly, there's one set of footprints, and the person is saying to God, God, why did you abandon me in my most difficult time? Are you familiar with this? And the line that I think is most memorable, I remember it even from a kid, is way in the, you can't even see the footprints, but when I saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. And God is again saying in your most difficult times, he doesn't just cheer you on. God doesn't just like give you the spurs and, and sit on the other side like I do with, you, when you're trying to teach your kid to walk, like, here you go, here you go. And you just, uh, you trick them by putting your hands very close to their hands and they're like, oh, thanks, dad. Wait, 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 you're tricking me, right? Is that what God does to you? You've almost made it to heaven. You've almost made it. You've almost made it. You've almost made it. Got it. No, God says, I pick you up and I bring you to myself. Now, because of that, what does the law mean? The law means we're going to have this special relationship. So what do we mean by treasured possession? Has anyone seen the movie The Lord of the Rings or the, read the book The Hobbit? So in The Hobbit, so they, they make this long, I can't think of the smog. There we go. I just lost the dragon name and I got it back. Um, so they make their way on this long journey, right? The hobbit and the dwarves. And Thorn Oakenshield, who's in charge, he's the, the dwarf with the beard, which narrows it down a lot, I think. And so the dwarf with the beard, they go all the way down, and they have this giant treasure, which I'm just picturing. I can't wait for the movie version of this. And you just picture like people like Scrooge McDuck diving into the gold and, and, and going around and, and all these treasures. What is the ultimate thing that Thorn really wants? Can you remember the Arkenstone? This is not ringing any bells on anyone's face. You can actually get a replica of the Arkenstone. Did you know that? You, yeah, it's at uh, www.moveoutofyourparentsbasement.com. So the, <laughs> but the Arkenstone is the thing that Thorin wanted. So of all these treasures, there's mounds and mounds of gold and everything. This is the thing he wants. And when God looks at you, he says, I've already accepted you, but I want this to be the best relationship it can possibly be. I want to delight in you. I want you to be my treasured possession as a nation and as Christians. This is what he's saying to you. Remember when you first fell in love and you continued to do, but you remember you did research? You think you're falling in love with someone, not like creepy research like Google, trying to figure out if they're weirdos or something like that, but you try and figure out what that person likes. Does this sound familiar? You should still be doing this to some degree. I'll give an example. Uh, two, last week, I told some of you this, on Tuesday, a friend of mine sends me a text and says, hey, I've got four tickets to One Direction. So this is a boy band, if you don't know, from uh, Great Britain, as I understand it. So this is a boy band with lots of flowing hair and things like this. My daughter happens to love One Direction. She's a big fan. She's glowing now just from the name One Direction. So she's glowing about this idea. And so my friend says, you know, Teresa and I don't really want to go. Our daughter wants to go. Can some of you, one of you chaperone? You can go. I'm like, okay. So I sit down with Amy, and I say, you know, honey, it is going to be an awesome concert. And there are 14,000 screaming girls. I think this would be a special moment for you and your daughters. 
And she's like, sure you don't want to go? I'm like, I think this would be so moving and special that you should take her. Does my wife want to go to the One Direction concert? We didn't quite go to rock, paper, scissors. But it, probably not. You know, like, this is not the thing she's looking for. But why was it a joy to her? Because it's a joy to my daughter. It's a joy to my daughters. What they like, you like. And when you love someone, you find delight in what that other person delights in. Have you noticed that? And I've used the example of like fishing poles and something silly. You do research, you know what your husband wants or you know what your wife wants. And you're like, I don't know why they want this. I don't know why they like this. And you give it and their eyes light up and then suddenly you're really excited. And that's why Christmas is so awesome, right? That's why you like to have kids. And my grandparents want to fly in just to be there for it, see their grandkids open presents because they still scream. They still are giddy. They're still excited. We go, oh, wow, thanks. You know, they're still excited. God wants to delight in you. And God says this, I give you my law to let you know what I delight in. And we can do a little bit of research. God says, I delight in honesty, so what does God expect of us? Honesty. God says, I delight in people who are committed to their relationships, so what do we seek to do in our relationships? God says, I delight in people who don't desire all the other things but are happy with the things I give them. God gives you the law so that he can delight in you and you can find joy in what God finds joy in. That's just one aspect of it. We're not going to go too long on it. A second aspect that God um, does when he gives us the law is we go here. So you, ha- you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, they had a two-way covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. God is saying to the people of Israel, I'm giving you these laws, and by these laws, you're going to be a different kind of people. You know how different they are? This is the first culture. Just look, everything is going to be a little bit backwards. This is the first culture on the whole planet where uh, girls can inherit and get an inheritance. That does not happen in any other culture. This is the first culture in the whole world where it's an offense for a lady to, I mean, for a man to commit adultery and not just a woman. The first one. So just imagine what the outsiders would have been looking at as they look at this culture. Would they have looked differently? This is the first culture. When you talk about how you even use your money, how different this is. Usually, when we talk about our own money, we say, I use the money for myself. I use it for the people I like. But ultimately, you want to use your money for yourself. God says, I want 10% to come back to me. And in fact, every three years with special donation, it gets up to 23.3%. Now, I did not do the math on that. But 25% of your income is going to something not just yourself. Would people on the outside see that that is different? Yeah, in the same way, people on the outside see that you are different. They are a holy nation. There's something different. They're representative. J- Jesus says the same words, right? He says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise my Father in heaven. You, as a Christian, look different than the people around you. You're a beacon to the world to say we're part of a community. You can't be an individual Christian and function very well, but we're part of a community that stands out among the world to be something else, a holy nation. So then God gives the laws. And so God spoke all these words, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther is way smarter than I'll ever be. Said you can't break any command without breaking the first command. 
And I think that's why we're only going to cover this much. God lays out the law and says, listen, I'm your God, and I don't want you to have any other gods before me. And what the law does, this is the third point, what the law does is it shows you kind of how your own mind functions. Wouldn't it be awesome if when you became a Christian, God says you shall have no other gods, and that was no problem, it just like functioned like that? Wouldn't it be great if there was no other temptation and you just, everything works smoothly and you said, God is the ultimate. There's no other thing that becomes ultimate things in my life. What God's laws do when you read through them is they show you where your heart is yearning to things outside of God. I'll give you some examples. And I'll go from kind of the mundane to something a little bit more serious. Uh, how many of you, well, this is, this is kind of a personal question, so I won't ask it that way. How many of you know someone very well that has trouble with organization. So you're thinking of this person that they, they try everything. They've got like the Franklin Covey stuff and they've got all kinds of books and then they have posted note time bombs that, you know, just like all over their mirror and you're like, how does this function? Um, or they, they get the new Palm Pilot way back when and then they, they get a new one. This is maybe autobiographical. And suddenly you have the smartphone with all the calendars. Does this sound like anyone you know? And you could say like, you know what, I'm just a little disorganized. You know, big deal. That's not a big deal. You know, I just, it's not my, it's not how I'm wired. That's not how I function. I'm not an engineer. It just doesn't work like this. And, and you go on and on. What are you really saying? And why do you really have that problem? At the gist of it, you can't say no, right? The reason why all this is overlapping and you're late for everything is because you can't say no to things. So is it just that? Or is it your God in some sense has become human approval from other people? So as you open up the laws of God, you say, okay, God, am I just disorganized or do I so crave human approval that I can never say no? What if you're stingy? You don't like to give your money away and you're like, oh, that's how I work. You know, my grandparents were from the Depression and, and now I just watch my money. Is that it? Or are you so concerned, is your security so wrapped up in your money that to let any of it go erodes the security you have in your life? God's law give you a picture how your heart works. Or you lie, and you're like, oh, I just, I'm a bad person, I shouldn't have done that. Is it that, or are you afraid of losing something that you hold more important than you hold God? Because God has laid out before you, this is what I delight in, and we're choosing to do something else. The law shows you what your heart is. Got one more. The, um, if you read catechism when you're a kid, what do they tell you? The law shows you what? So then he took the book of the covenant and he reads it to the people. Now just imagine this scenario. So Mount Sinai is this big mountain and it's black on top at this point. The people are all surrounded by it. They, have, they, have, they can have not, no intimate relations. They have to get mentally and physically prepared for the giving of the law. They're all getting ready. They say, if you touch the mountain, you die by stoning. Okay, so the people are, I, I'd imagine, I'm, I'll be in the back. That's what I would say. Like, I don't want any of the grade near me. I'll be way in the back. So they're way back here. Moses is on top. The, God comes down with fire. It sounds like thunder. And he's up there, we told you, for like uh, a month and a half. So this is a, a long time, 40 days. Just imagine how scary this picture would have been, like terrifying. And then the law comes down, and, Mo and Moses says, here's the law. I'm going to read it to you. So he gets the book of the covenant, and he reads it to the people, and they respond, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. 
Does that seem like a good idea to you or a bad idea? You know how, like, when a teacher asks a question and you just kind of say what you want them to hear, even though you know it's not really going to happen? Do you think that would fit into that category? They just laid out 613 laws, and you're like, yes. Wouldn't, wouldn't you be a little bit smarter to be like, we will obey most of the time. We will obey sometimes. Often we will obey. Is this, now you think, well, that's not that big a deal. But then Moses takes blood. He sprinkles it on the people to say, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. What is the picture there? We make a deal. So I say, we don't shake hands with Craigslist people, but um, say you and I make a deal, and we say, all right, I will be there tomorrow. I'll give you 50 bucks for it, and you say, you got it. You put out your hand, you shake, right? And you're just saying, on my word, I'm going to do that, right? What is the picture here if someone takes blood and sprinkles it on the people? How many of you are uncomfortable right now if we just had a sacrifice and we're whipping blood out? The picture is this. This is like a, a picture kind of culture that says, if we do not, well, I'll give you another example. When God made a deal with Abraham, this is a one-way covenant, they split animals in half, and then God goes through in a glowing pot. Normally, when they made covenants like that, you would make it over an animal, so you'd have this special like uh, covenant meal, and you and I could take this animal back when you cut this animal in half, and then you'd both walk through it. What is the picture being said? If you don't follow your side of the deal, this is what's going to happen to you. Deal? deal. The people of Israel, just before God as their witness, said, we will follow your commands, we'll completely obey, and if we don't, let this happen to us. And the sacrifice of blood goes on them as a reminder. Can you imagine that irony taste just going like, what were we thinking? How long do you think they made it? Ten minutes, something like that? I don't know. But we have this weird instance right after this that God gets together Moses, the 70 elders, um, uh, Aaron and his two sons, and he brings them up to the top of the mountain, and they eat and they drink, and apparently they see God. Not God's face, it doesn't say that, but they see God. That's kind of a weird instance, isn't it? That somehow they can be in God's presence because of God's mercy. Well, 1,500 years later, Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out you for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink. This is my body. This is my blood so that you can have communion with me. Ultimately, the law doesn't just show us um, how we can delight God by following his, his commands and, and enjoying what he enjoys. It doesn't just show us uh, it doesn't just show us all these other things, but it ultimately shows us how and what God has done for us. It shows us a Savior. And when you look at your lowest points, when you've given up and said, I can't do enough to please God, God says, that is when I carried you. And he put out his arms and he carried your sins and he carried your burdens to say, now you have forgiveness and now you can go as my treasured possessions. Not because of what you've done, in spite of what you've done. Amen.